What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? Um, this is going to be real basic today, so I'm going to keep it real surface level, but kind of just, just a, a refresher on some things we talked through the past year. Um, what does it mean to be human? Does it mean to be sinless or perfect? Or does it mean to be like God, reflecting his image to the creation and then back to him? Of course, we know to be human is to bear the image and likeness of God. Then the question becomes, if that is true, the question becomes, how do we bear the image and likeness of God? If that's what it means to be human, then the next step is, how do we do that? Well, before we know this, we must know what or rather who the image and likeness of God is, okay? So three steps. What it means to be human is to be in the image and likeness of God. Next step. Then the question is, how do we bear the image and likeness of God? But we can't know that until really we know what or who the image and likeness of God is. Is that too much? You all get what I'm saying? So let me, let me just draw this out. <clears throat> all right, so... To be human is image and likeness of God. Okay? So that's what it means to be human. Then the question is, how do we bear that image? Or let's say it like this. How do we be human? And then a kind of a sub-question here is, if it's to bear the image and likeness, what in the world is the image and likeness anyway? Almost done. Okay. Many people would say that the image... I'm going to just go ahead and move this. Most people would say that the image and likeness of God is to be sinless. That's, that's, that couldn't be further from the truth. Okay. So the image and likeness of God is a person, okay? And that person is Jesus. Okay. So to be human is to bear the image and likeness of God. How do we be human? Well, the first thing we got to know is what is the image? It's Jesus. So then, now that we know that it's Jesus, we come back to this question. How do we bear the image and likeness of God, which is Christ? Okay. Hebrews 1.3 says this. The Son is the exact representation of God's being or image. Okay. So if Christ is the exact image and likeness, mankind was originally made in God's image, specifically God the Son's image. In fact... Luke's genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3 labels Adam as the Son of God, which is the label also given to Christ, the last Adam. Go, if you go back to Luke 3 in the Christmas, kind of post-Christmas story, and read Luke's genealogy, the family that Jesus comes from, you get to Adam, and then it says this. It says, Adam, who was the Son of God, which is Luke's kind of kind of subtle way of bringing Adam and Christ together, okay? Eden, the Garden of Eden, represents the place where God and man are one. God and mankind, one, that's the Garden of Eden. The Genesis poem describes God walking with Adam in the cool of the day. It gives this language because at the core, mankind was made to be one with God. Okay, this is stuff we've talked about. This is review, but this is good to remember. Mankind was made to be one with God. 
if we were made to mirror the image of God, and the image of God is expressly Jesus Christ, then we can only be true, uh, truly human if we live in union with the very image we were made to reflect, which is Jesus. That's a lot. We were made to reflect the image. What's the image? Jesus. So how do we be human? We reflect the image of Jesus. Next question is, how do you reflect the image of Jesus? I'm going to say it like this. You become the image of Jesus. How do you become the image of Jesus? Paul says it like this. You are now one with Christ Jesus. Okay. Amen. And if this is true, what would the greatest disturbance be to our humanity? Pretend this is like a Tuesday night, okay? Because everybody's, everybody's out of town at, you know, having fun. Um, this is my fun. Okay. So, human image and likeness. If that's the case, and somebody can answer, there's, well, there is a wrong answer, but, you know, there's no wrong answers. If that's what it means to be human, what would be the greatest disturbance to us being human? Being not like Jesus, that's good. It, it would be, huh? No, it's not wrong. It's right. It would be a disturbance. It would be a distortion. It would be maybe we say a veil that would keep us from seeing, therefore bearing the image of Jesus fully. So many people would say it like this. Why did Jesus become incarnate? To deal with sin. No, Jesus became incarnate, Jesus became flesh in order to restore an image that had gotten distorted. And in order to restore the image that had gotten distorted, he also had to undo sin. Okay, much of the West has said sin, but what is sin? Not sin in general as a moral failing, because you weren't made to be morally perfect, you were made in the image and likeness of God. God did not say in the garden, okay, raise man up. Let's make man as morally perfect as we possibly could. If he did, the standard for us is to live morally perfect, if that's the case. But that's not what he did. He made us in an image and likeness of God. Now, a lot of people would argue, is God not sinless? Absolutely. But we're called to reflect the image of what is sinless, not be autonomously sinless. If I'm reflecting the image of Jesus, suddenly I'm going to start living without sin. If I attempt to live without sin, I could be completely separated from Christ to be morally perfect. I mean, look at all the other religions across the world. They don't know who Jesus is, and yet they live better than we do. You know what I'm saying? And so it, it's not about how morally perfect you live. It's about how untainted your mirror is reflecting the image that you were designed to reflect, okay? Um, what is sin? Hamartia is what? It's, it's formlessness. Hem, sin, the word hamartia in Greek is ha, which is a negative. It's a negative word that added to any other word is, makes it a negative, so without, okay? And then meros, which is the other part of hamartia, means portion or form, without portion or without 
form. That's what it means to sin. So what it means to sin is not, oh man, I told a lie. What it means to sin is to be living out of step with your design and therefore it produced the fruit of a lie. So it's going one step deeper to the root. Okay, so uh, you were made in the image and likeness of God. Remember, hemartia, formlessness, is what sin is. Therefore, the greatest disturbance to our humanity is not morality. It's actually, a big word, autonomy. That is the fall. It's not moral failure. It's a decision to self-govern and control our lives. That's the fall. God said, if you eat, let me just ask you, God, if you eat of that tree, if you eat of the tree I told you not to eat, which by the way, this is a, the, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and basically the rest of Genesis 2, is also a, a one big prophetic, poetic literature. Okay? So in Genesis 3, it's not, it's not, I've said this every week, but it's not trying to tell us that there was a man and a woman and a snake and the snake was talking and they took a bite of a tree and because they ate a piece of fruit they weren't supposed to eat, they got food poisoning and that food poisoning was sin and it was the fall. That, you know what I'm saying? No. What the story is trying to tell us is that was probably written in Babylonian exile. We know that, okay? Historic, we have all the documents. We know that was probably written in Babylonian exile, which would have been less than a thousand years before, the, before Christ came at Christmas, okay? So if you're in Babylonian exile and you're writing the story that's been passed down to you through, through tradition about how mankind got to the place where they're sitting in slavery in Babylonian exile, right? you would say the way we got here is because we turned away from God and chose to live on our own apart from God, which led to us being in slavery, and that's the story. God tells them, if you eat of this tree, you will die. Okay, They're made in the image and likeness of God, yet the serpent comes in and says, if you eat this, you'll be like God. Were they not like God? They were, except for one thing. God knew something that he kept from humanity, which was evil. They knew what was good. Let there be light, it's good. Let there be waters, is separation between waters, it's good. Let there be animals, they're good. Let there be trees, they're good. Let there be mankind, very good. They know what good is. There's one thing that's been missing, and it's evil. And it's living in a trust of God that keeps them from a knowledge which would produce shame in their nakedness, okay? So when they take of the tree, essentially what they're saying is, is we don't trust that God has our best at heart. Therefore, we need to take control of this situation. It's autonomy. It's not disobedience. The disobedience was a problem. But the only reason the disobedience was a problem is because before the disobedience, there was a choice to live apart from God. That's what autonomy means. It means to self-govern. So to be human is to be in union with the image that you are made to participate in. Therefore, we lose our humanity and start tumbling into what Athanasius says, non-existence, when we make the decision to separate from union and dependence and do things on our own. That's why no matter how successful you are, we see this all over the news all the time, no matter how successful you are in your job, in your career, in your bank account, in your acting, in your relationship, etc., if you achieved it apart from union, you will never be satisfied, ever. You, I mean, we see this on the news, right? How many, how many superstars have we watched on the news commit suicide? Uh, is countless. 
And it wasn't because they were poor, and it wasn't because they didn't have opportunities, and it wasn't because they didn't have relationships, and it wasn't because they didn't have friends, and it wasn't because... No. It was because they achieved a measure of success that you and I are only designed to receive within union. And if you receive that within union, guess what? The weight of this being all on my shoulders is no longer a thing because you didn't get there by way of your own shoulders. You got there by way of receiving an inheritance and being a son and daughter of God. So the king, Charles, is not, at least we don't know, is not suicidal like the other superstars in the world and in Hollywood. And he's at a level that they are not. How is that possible? Because King Charles did not get to the throne by way of working hard. He got, way to, uh, he got to the throne by way of his blood. That's it. He inherited the throne. And again, like I said last week, I don't know what they do. But, but he got a throne. You know what I'm saying? He got him a throne. How did he get a throne? He just, he's just in the family. That's it. There's a major difference, okay? So we participate in that. Um, because in our core, whether or not we even know it, who we are is calling out for really one thing, and that's union. And when you start down the path of autonomy, the first symptom that you will notice is anxiety. When you start down the path of living on your own, the first symptom that is a giant sign saying you're going down the wrong path is when you start to feel anxious. And I'm speaking, I'm, let me, I'm speaking from ex, big experience. I can t- Every moment I start to worry, Lord, is the church going to have enough money? Right? I, I'll start to get anxious, and, and guess what we have every time? Enough money. You know what I'm saying? And, and it, but it's... I'm trying to walk down a path that union is not going down. And it creates an anxiety within me. At the same time, every time I feel that anxiety, me and Jordan have been doing this a lot lately, we'll open up, let's say the Psalms, and you'll get three verses in and suddenly you'll feel the weight just fall. And it's because you're coming back into alignment with union. And it's this, there's a feeling that comes on you when you try to live your own way that doesn't even come on you when you sin. And it's because on the inside of you, the Lord did not create you so that you would be perfect. He created you to bear the perfect image of Christ. So I must decrease, John says, and he must increase. Okay? Genesis 3 is just to review what we've said the past couple of weeks. God tells Adam, because of what they have done, that by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your bread. By the sweat of your brow. Just to review, just to remind you this, that is not saying you're going to work so hard that you'll sweat and your hard work will give you bread. He's saying this is a Hebrew idiom, which is a phrase that stands for something else. This is a Hebrew idiom that stands for fear-induced perspiration. So he's saying, by your fear of never having enough, by your anxiety, you'll eat. In other words, because of you trying to live apart from me, you'll always worry about having enough. Here's the other side of that. You'll always have enough. So you'll always worry about not having enough, and yet you'll always have enough. So the Israelites get into the wilderness, right? They just see God part a sea, deliver them from Egypt. Their stomach starts rumbling. They're like, well, let's just go back to Egypt. It's, 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 by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat. We should just go back to Egypt. Did y'all not, did y'all not just see the water? Was I the only one that just walked past the water? 
You know what I'm saying? Oh, God, we're going to die. We don't have food. Like, you know, okay. And then they try to kill Moses and try to... Somehow Joshua ends up getting uh, threatened through all this. It's when they, like, guys, let's have faith. I've seen what the Lord can do. We can take it. And they're like, let's stone him. Let's kill him, you know. Um, so I can relate to Joshua. But that's, that's where these, the, these Israelites are, and that's where you and I are. We do that all the time. We don't do it in the wilderness, but we do it in our jobs, or we do that in our homes, or we do that in our uh, college li- lives, or we do it in our career. Every single time, it seems like the Lord's backed us into a corner, we start to question the faithfulness of God. He backed us into the corner to prove the faithfulness of God once again because we forgot about it. That's a word. There's one gaping problem then in this entire thing that I've told you. Most of our culture prides itself in autonomy. We tell people, I'm about to get in a lot of trouble. Uh, We tell people, for example, to pursue their truth. We encourage people to follow their heart and chase their desires. It's all not bad things. And identify themselves as what they feel they are. We say like this. You do you. We've built an entire society on the individual because we're heavily Greek-influenced. Protagoras, the Greek philosopher, said, man is the measure of all things. Welcome to America. You know what I'm saying? You do you. Let them live their truth. And we've built a society on individuals. Everyone is self-governing, and if your self-government is different than somebody else's self-government, you can just cut them off because you don't really need them anyway because it's just about you doing you. And the church is no different. I can be, this is what people say, I can be the church where I am. I'm looking for a church that provides what I need. Yeah, I left that church because I didn't like blank. Even the things people look for in a church are all things that benefit self. I love community, but community, preaching and worship styles, programs, etc. All those are great, but that's not what we're looking for in the church. It's what you inherit when you find a home that honors union. So you find community within union rather than looking for community and hope that union somewhere along the way falls in. And it never does. Just to be clear, if I'm getting you in here because of community, then guess what I can never stray from in order to keep you here? Community. So I can never pivot from the message on community to the message of union because if I do that, we lose everybody that came here by way of the message of community. But if you come in by way of the message of union, we don't ever have to pivot. We can just go deeper into what it means to actually have community within union. Okay? It's amazing how people wonder why they can't find family when they won't first seek the intimate union that produces family. You can't have a family unless a father and a bride become intimate. So people are looking for kids from a union they refuse to look for and wonder why they're not finding the kids. No, we need to find the father and get in intimacy with the father and it will start to produce the kids of community and music and whatever else you like. So how did God answer the problem of autonomy in the Old Testament? Here's how he answered it. He answered it through a bunch of things, but Sabbath, which is rest and trust. He answered it through the tithe, which is trust. He answered it through the temple, which was community within the union of God and his people. 
He answered it through countless moments of testing and proving, proving, which cultivates trust. And ultimately, he answered it through Christ in the church. How how do you answer somebody living in self-government? You force them to stop self-governing for a day and watch the faithfulness of the Lord. Sabbath. How do you force someone to stop believing that it was by their hands that they got everything that they have by forcing them? And he had to force them because they wouldn't have done it on their own. By forcing them to take 10% and give it to the Lord and watch the Lord be faithful. The Lord is constantly having to prove to his people that he is the one that's faithful, right? When the people believe we're the ones that are faithful and God's the one that's shaky. And so constantly it's the goodness of God that will bring us into moments where we can't do it on our own in order to prove that it's not about what we do on our own. It's about what he does on our behalf in union with us. We must reorient the cross within the story of the incarnation. I talked about this a lot to Isaiah this week. Isaiah gets all that just, I'll come in with an idea, and then three hours later, Isaiah's like, Lord, please, um, let it end. We, we must reorient the cross within the incarnation. Let me explain this. Y'all good with this? Okay. I didn't even give you a time to answer. I just started erasing, so um, sorry about that. It's like when uh, Jordan does, she's like, where do you want to eat? I'm like, I literally don't care. I'll, I'll eat anything. I know that's true. I really will eat anything, you know. And she'll be like, well, I don't care. You just pick where you want. I'll be like, awesome, Mexican. Uh, I'm not really feeling that. What? I just, you know what I mean? Awesome. Let's do what you want, you know. I don't care, you know. And um, so that's what I just did to y'all. Y'all good? And then just started racing. This is, this, is what, this is what we in the West, and um, this is how we think. Okay. If you um, were to explain to any mum drum, Joe bro, whatever, uh, what the Christmas story is about. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. All right. We have this. We were given this, um, and we added the lights around it. Um, some people thought that was heretical. I thought it looked good. So, um, so anyway, who cares? So God is light, right? God is light. In, in our churches, we have crosses everywhere. Here's my question. Why don't we have mangers everywhere? You know what I'm saying? In fact, when I say that, it sounds weird. Does it not? Does it not sound weird? Like if I put a, if if y'all came in next Sunday and there was a manger up there, right? Instead of a cross, y'all be like, that is so weird. Why? Why is that weird? Because we think that everything is about the, I'm about to really hurt some people's feelings. Everything's about the cross, and a little footnote to the cross is, oh, by the way, Christmas. Why did Christmas happen? For the cross. No. How did the cross happen? For Christmas. The, this, we've oriented Christmas within the story of the cross No, the story of the cross needs to be oriented within the story of incarnation. Who cares if somebody dies unless they are God and man together as one? doesn't matter. In fact, the cross was not God's idea. It was the Romans. God didn't invent the cross. The Romans invented the cross. Death was not God's idea. It was ours. 
We kill Jesus. Should we release Barabbas? No. Crucify Jesus. That wasn't God. That was us. What should we do with him? Let's put him on a cross. That wasn't God. That was us, along with the Romans, together conspiring to kill God. God just said, I accept your death so that I can finish it. But none of that matters without the incarnation. The incarnation, I, I'm writing, I'm about to release this. I wrote, I've been writing stuff on this, and I haven't announced it yet, but I'm about to release it. So, in November, I've been working on this. The, the, the incarnation is, you ready? Giant statement, giant statement, is the salvation of the world. This is the final and complete, well, really, resurrection. I'm totally misspelling that. I don't think, I think it just has one S. I don't know that. Does it have two S's? One S, I thought so. The cross and the resurrection, the passion, is the grand finale of the story, but the story is the word became flesh. All right. Here we go. I'm going to prove it to you. In the incarnation, God met humanity's imagelessness and restored back to humanity what it means to be human. John 1.14, the word became flesh. Jesus becomes our hamartia, sin, so that we can become his image again. And what is hamartia? Our formlessness. He becomes our lack of identity so that we can be his full expression of identity once again. Book of Hebrews, who is Jesus? He is the exact representation of God's being. He's the exact image of God, is Jesus. So how do you answer a humanity who's lost the image to become humanity? And who becomes humanity? The exact image of God. So Jesus becoming flesh is him restoring to flesh what it means to be human, which is to bear the image of who? Jesus. If Jesus is the image that we were made in, okay? Jesus, fully God, fully man. If Jesus is the image that we were made in, the ultimate answer to us losing our way is for the image that we were made in to become us so that we, because of him becoming flesh alone, could be the image again. And not just that, he didn't just become flesh, die on a cross, rise again, and then ascend as a ghost. He ascended as the Word became flesh. Right now, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, fully man, fully God, which means humanity is seated at the right hand of the Father, fully man, yet fully God. Christ became fully man so that mankind could become fully Christ. And it sounds weird because we never, we never taught that. We were taught, brother, it's all about the cross. No, brother, it's all about God became smaller than a jelly bean and was put into the stomach of a virgin that was a teenager. That's salvation. We never talk about that, right? God, the God of the universe, becomes a baby in the womb of a teenager. How vulnerable does it get? 
How much more vulnerable can you get than you surviving? Which, by the way, in that day and age, the number one killer in that society was pregnancy. The number one. Women would constantly die giving birth, and their babies would constantly die either in the womb or in giving birth. They didn't have hospitals. They didn't have epidurals. They didn't have, um, what's the stuff that they gave? I forget what the title of the stuff, the name of the stuff that they gave Jordan. Um, it was the stuff that make her have contractions. Anyway, um, Pitocin. There it is, Pitocin. Um, you know what I'm saying? They didn't have that. They didn't have oxygen to just throw on a mask and you're good to go. No. They, they're just giving birth. In, in, in a lot of ways, in filth. I mean, it was not clean. They didn't have toilets that flushed. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you can use your imagination. So God becomes as vulnerable as you could possibly become. Let me just, I'm not even talking about this today, but let me just help you. He so becomes humanity that he becomes us from seed all the way to death. There is not one moment, including when you were in the womb of your mother, there isn't one moment that Christ did not become. Do you, I mean, see, we, we, he, he was born. No, I think we missed the part that the full, Colossians says, the fullness of deity dwelled in Christ. Not just Son, Father, Son, and Spirit all together dwelled fully in Christ. Whew. Okay, John 5, 19 says this. Um, the Son, Jesus speaking, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son does. So he becomes man. Not only does he become man, he teaches us how to be man, which is... There is nothing I do by myself. I only do what I see my Father doing because what the Father does, I do. We are so joined in union that every step the Father takes, I take, and I do not take one step that the Father does not take with me. That's what it means to be human. I mean, okay, this is big stuff. Um, let, me, let me read 2 Corinthians finally. Let me read 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. This is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. Very familiar. Do what? Um, I told y'all, listen, I told y'all, no. <laughs> um, and I had, another, uh, I had another quote. I'll read it next week. There's another quote. Nope, no, 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 no. I have it, I have it, I have it, I have it. Let me read you this quote from Karl Barth, um, my favorite theologian of all time. This is what he says. <clears throat> I have a book in my office, but I wrote it in, quoted it in the book that I wrote. This is what he says. He talks about Christmas. Flesh, which in the Greek is the word sarx, in the New Testament, is not human nature generally and ideally, but concretely this human nature in which I find myself the nature of Adam. The nature of man, excuse me, the nature man possesses under the sign of the fall in the realm of darkness, and in his principal opposition to God and to his own self, that is the image that Jesus becomes. And then he quotes John Calvin and says this. This is what Calvin said. Christ, of his boundless grace, 
associates himself with the mean and ignoble. Christ doesn't just become the best of us, he becomes the worst of us. He becomes the fullness of what it means to be human. He is tempted in every way so as to relate to us in every way. You see this all throughout the Gospels, okay? This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. You there yet? Okay. This is what he says. Verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others, but we ourselves are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known to your consciousness, or excuse me, consciousness. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ urges us or compels us because we are convinced, listen, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. Woo! Okay. Big. Christ has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, listen, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. Let me stop right here. Stop right here. Lord, that's good. Those two verses are powerful. Okay. He died for all. Everybody say all. All. Okay. Okay, so that those who live, all right, if he died for all, who are those who live? All, yeah. So that those who live might, why? Might live no longer for themselves. And right there in that statement, Paul is directly pointing to Genesis 3. He died for all so that, because what did God tell them? If you eat of the tree, what will happen? You'll die. He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. Paul is saying, if you eat it, this is what God says, if you eat of the tree, you will die. Paul comes in and says, Christ became you and died the death for what you did in Genesis 3. And because he died that death on your behalf and was raised from that death on your behalf, don't live in that any longer. In other words, if autonomy got us here and he died to the effects of autonomy, why on God's green earth would you live another moment in autonomy? He's saying, no, Christ died to that so that you could live as you were designed to live, which is with and for and of him. Big. From now on, he goes deeper. Therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. What is a human point of view? Autonomy, living for themselves. Okay. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Then he goes even deeper. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Now, you ready for this? 
He was reconciled the world to himself, not counting their sins against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. Hold up. Huh? He was reconciling the world to himself. Listen, not counting their trespass against them. Big problem. I thought he died to pay the debt of my sins that I owed. But Paul says he wasn't even keeping a debt of your sins. And if God was not keeping a debt of your sins, what debt was there for Christ to die to pay off? Right? Even, even I was speaking to Eric Peterson, Eugene Peterson's son, a few months ago. And he was ta- he's a Presbyterian pastor. And I, honestly, I've, I've started to kind of like Presbyterians. They, they have some good beliefs. But they're just old school. They're so traditional. You, you walk in, sleep for an hour. It's like a nap. But anyway, but they do have good beliefs. And, um, and so anyway, I was talking to him, and he said, you know what song that we cannot sing? Like, we literally can't sing it anymore. And it's, on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And he said, one day I was listening to that, and I said, what scripture is that in? <laughs> I mean, look, like, where's that in the Bible? The wrath of God was satisfied? It's not in the Bible. Here's what's crazy. Even as I say that, you're like, wait a minute. You know what I'm saying? It's not. No. The wrath of God is aimed at autonomy. It's not aimed at you and I. It's aimed at the autonomy within you and I, which is why I I welcome the wrath wrath of God follow me day in and day out. The scripture says like this, God proved or tested them. That's what God, that's what, when, when it says, when you read in the Old Testament and New Testament, that God tested them, what he's essentially saying is the wrath of God began to fall on their autonomy. He tested them. You know what I'm saying? So why did God let them get into the, why did God let their stomach start rumbling in the wilderness? Because the wrath was after autonomy. He was trying to prove to them that you are not going to eat by way of your hands. It's going to be by way of my hand. Okay, so... That, that is, ama- Paul is telling them that when Christ died, he wasn't dying because of a debt. He died so that those who live for themselves might not live for themselves anymore, but for him. That was the reason. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I'm going to point on that word and then we're almost done. So we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Okay, For our sake, he made him who to be sin, who knew no sin, that, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me say it like this. For our sake, he made him to be, hamartia, formless, for those, or excuse me, who knew no formlessness, Christ, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, or we might get our form. He made him who had complete confidence in who he was to become a lack of confidence in who he was so that we might get who we are back. Amazing. Now, here's what Paul says. That God was reconciling or... Yeah, God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Then right before that, he says that God wasn't counting trespasses against people, but he was reconciling us to God. So... Was on the cross, did God reconcile us to himself or do we need to be reconciled to God now? Yes. I'm going to explain this to you. In two verses, 
on the cross, God was reconciling the world. Now be reconciled to him. Hmm? Essentially, what Paul is saying is there was a, what's the word? A precedent that was set on the cross that you must come into agreement with in order to live out. So it means nothing if Christ died to all of the autonomy of the world. I use that word, but to all of the formlessness, to all of the distorted image of the world. It means nothing unless you and I see that death and we say, oh man, Christ did something for me that I could not do on my behalf. Therefore, I'm going to live as one who has been reconciled to him. Paul is saying, this is what Christ did. Now, this is what you need to do in response to what Christ did. And it's the same thing. The word reconcile means, I'm jumping way ahead of myself, but I got it memorized. The word reconcile means to restore to harmony. To restore to harmony. Christ becoming humanity is humanity becoming Christ. That is the new creation. Note that in the New Testament, it uses the language new creation. Creation. And as we saw in the beginning, that is what it means to be human. We're living in a new creation. And you see this all throughout Scripture. For example, in Genesis 1, there was a chaotic water that the Spirit brooded over to bring order to, and then God created, right? Then in Genesis 6, in the story of the flood, God reopens the chaotic water in order to decreate and then recreate again. And then for you and I, we go through, for the Exodus, they go through the waters of baptism, essentially. They go through the chaotic waters in order to make it to the promised land. This is all throughout Scripture, okay? You can look at the story of Jonah. You can look at all the... The water in the near ancient east was a... um, It was a, a force that they could not control. And therefore, water was the thing that they feared the most. The people of the near ancient... Uh, ancient near east, excuse me, feared water more than anything else because they could not control it. So if the waters were crazy, they thought the gods were mad. And if the waters were calm, they thought the gods were appeased. That's how everybody in the Mesopotamia, all those people, that's how they believe. Well, then you got Jesus coming onto the scene. And when they're in a boat and the water's going crazy and it's about to sink the ship and he steps up and he says, be quiet. And it stops. All the disciples say, what? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? See, we, we miss that. We think that that's, you know, some big Pentecostal like call, call, to, call to arms. Sure. But what they're saying is, is he has with one word combed the thing that we cannot contain. Who is this? And then as he dies, when he dies, what pours from his side? Blood, Passover, and water. To bring us into what? A new creation. And then you and I, as believers, what happens? We come into alignment with the reconciliation that's been opened up to us, and then what's the first thing that we do? Baptism. Why? Because he's bringing out of the waters a new creation. So you see this over and over and over and over and over and over again that God is taking that which is the most uncontrollable and he's leveraging it to bring his creation back into his design. And that's what it means for you and I to live 
in Christ rather than with Christ. It's because when we're walking through our lives that are only meant to reflect the image of God and we suddenly start to deviate from that, all the stuff around us that was contained in union suddenly is unleashed chaotically. It's only the Spirit that begins to brood over the waters that brings order. So what happens in Acts 2? They're all together in one place and suddenly... The Spirit's poured out on all flesh. To do what? To bring order to this new creation that had just come through the water. This is what he says in John 3 you, to Nicodemus. You must be born again. And immediately Nicodemus begins to think about the Red Sea in Exodus. When Jesus says you must be born again, it is an, as a, a, a Hebrew Jewish idiom speaking to the Exodus. You must, be born, you must come through the waters of Egypt or the, the wilderness again. And that's why Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again after he's been old? He's not talking about how can a man be put back in his mother's womb. What he's saying is, how can Israel, after all these years, go back to Egypt? So what he's, that's essentially what he's saying. And Jesus is saying, I'm about to bring you through an exodus that Egypt could not give you any kind of image for, which is an exodus from the death of you trying to run things on your own. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him shall not, what? Perish, expire, that's another word, but have everlasting life. Remember the garden? If you eat of the tree, you'll what? Die. Those who believe, the word believe is pistis, it's the word for faith. Faith in that sense comes from God, not from us. So all who receive that which God has given them shall not taste death but have eternal life. What was the effect of the garden when things went wrong? Death. So you see in the entire scripture that there is a story of us living on our own. Us living on our own has caused us to go into death and Christ coming into the death that we were barreling towards and receiving it being resurrected, and now there is no death for you and I to be barreling towards anymore because Christ finished it. And, and, they, and see, that's the gospel. And that's why this needs to be our aim, not we need to honor this, but we really need to start honoring this. The cross is amazing, and I'm so glad. Well, I'm not. You know, The Romans did a great job inventing that, but I'm, you, I'm not going to come in a church and honor something that Rome built and not honor something God built, which was the Word became flesh. You know, well, well, God died on the cross, and it is finished. Absolutely. The only reason it matters that it's finished is because the Word became flesh. The only reason we care about the Sermon on the Mount is because the Sermon on the Mount was speaking by God who became flesh. Other than that, it's a great sermon, and it's heretical. To the Jews... Well, Moses said, don't be angry. Or Moses said, don't murder. But I'm telling you, don't be angry. And the Jews would have been like, excuse me? Y'all think I say heretical stuff. You know what I'm saying? Huh? And he says, hold on. Moses said, an eye for an eye. I'm telling you to love those who hate you. Huh? You know what I'm saying? Unless the one speaking that is God himself, there is a big problem in that text. 
You know what I'm saying? But the word became flesh to fix every misconception that you and I had of how we relate to God. And it's not God at a distance and us trying to cross the great chasm by way of how perfectly we live. It's God living so close that he's in us. Our lives, Colossians says, are hidden in Christ and us just realizing that. That's it. If the church would preach the incarnation, if the church would preach the incarnation, I promise you the chaos in our world would begin to die down. I promise you. What if we looked at the people that disagree with us and we saw them as hidden in Christ too? They just don't know it. Uh, uh-oh. Huh? And you see this. The world is looking for an identity. The, the latest news I saw this week, not to get into politics, but you know, the latest news that I saw come over my phone this week is somebody from The View bashing Nikki Haley because she doesn't act Indian enough. I think it's Indian. Some, some nationality enough. And I'm like, first off, why did I get this notification, number one, Apple? You know what I'm saying? But second off, huh? Uh, you know what I'm saying? She doesn't, she just don't, she don't act like her heritage. Huh? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, and, but this is where we are. The world is searching for an identity, shooting down a bunch of other identities, Right? And we are just grasping for, really, I believe, the church to step up and say, I know who we are. But the church is just as lost in its identity as the world around us. And that's why we can't tell. the We can invite people into our clubs so that we all feel better about our loss of identity. You know what I'm saying? But, man, if we invite people to come in and make the decision to realize you're actually in Christ... And Christ is actually in you now? Suddenly there's an answer. Why was I created the way I was created? The incarnation. So when we start, I mean, let me just, we're seeing this so, we're seeing this practically right now. How many stories do we see right now of people that are something that are trying to be something that they are not? That's, that's the definition of formlessness. It's you losing your identity. That's literally what that means. And so we're seeing this very practically play out, and the church has said, well, man, it's just, he said the world would get dark. First off, no, he did not. I don't, must be reading the King James. You know what I'm saying? But that's, um, last time I read it said that, first off, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It said he's coming back for a pure and spotless bride. It's said that he's coming back as a perichoresis in 1 Thessalonians 4, and that is not a rapture. That's him coming back to reign with us in what we have built on behalf of his name. So that's, that is not, he's coming back when things get good, not when things get bad. Who, since when does bad get to determine what God does? You know what I'm saying? No. And so we as the church have sat back and waited for God to return and clean up the mess. And God has said, no, you're the one that's supposed to clean up the mess. I gave you the creation. I gave you the creation. I'm the one that's over you and you're the one that's over. That's why Romans 8 says that all of creation is standing on tiptoe, not waiting for the return of Christ, waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be manifested. So that with us, it might experience decay, freedom from decay that's coming to the sons and daughters of God. That's what Romans 8 says. Not all of creation standing on tiptoe waiting for ten blood moons to show up so that God can come back in the, on the white horse and take us all away, blow everything up. 
No, but that's what most, that's what most churches are preaching right now. You know what I'm saying? My God, if this election turns out Democratic, he's coming back. And I'm here to tell you, number one, it's not going to turn out Democratic. Let me just, I don't, that's not a prophetic word. That's just a, I mean, my Lord, like how, how, how much worse can our economy get? Like, you know what I'm saying? It's about as bad as it gets. So, you know, my bread was $7 a few weeks ago. That's about as bad as it gets. Okay, can't go any higher. But, you know what I'm saying? I, but, it, well, my God, Joe Biden. Like, let me tell you what God's not sitting back waiting for. Joe Biden. No, you know what I'm saying? But that's, that's just what, that's just how, that's how we think. And it's because we have made the decision since the 19, or 1800s. We've made the decision to place God out there, us right here, because God, we know how, we got this. If we need you, we're calling you. We know how to run this. And then what happens? The earth was void and formless, darkness covering the deep. But when a family begins to allow the spirit to brood the water, the chaos, suddenly things start popping off. And that's what we've been talking about the past few weeks. Isaiah, you can pop up here. Um, that's what we've been talking When we talk about Sabbath and the tithe and all this stuff, it's not legal. It's not just saying, like, well, brother, you need to tithe. Sure, you absolutely need to tithe. But that, that's just not... It, it is, we are, we are coming back into alignment with dependency, right? And the first test for you and I being dependent on God rather than us is things like rest and the tithe. That's why we've been talking about this stuff. It's not because, you know, we want to, I mean, of course we do want to be blessed, but, but we're not saying that because we need to get everybody to tithe so that we can be all be perfect. No, we're saying that because we need you and I need us, me and my family, to believe that we are actually in a union with a son who is so infatuated with us, he became everything that we were so that we could become everything he was. We didn't deserve that. We deserved what God told us we would get, which was death. Do you see this? If you eat of that tree, you will die. And when we did it, God stepped in as a father and said, I'll tell you what, I'll die if it means you can live. You know, huh? You know what I'm saying? If you eat of that, you will die. Awesome. You know, start eating. And God comes in to Abraham in Genesis 15, and he says, with the, with the smoke and the fire as it's coming across the blood path, and Abraham's watching it take place, God steps in and he says, I'll tell you what, if somebody has to die, it'll be me. So that you can live. If blood is needed, it'll be my blood. And so as God was not keeping a record of our trespasses, climbed up on a cross and let us drill nails into his hand, we died with him. Why did we die with Christ? Because Christ was humanity. The word became flesh. So what we did not know is when we were drilling the nails into Christ, we were really drilling the nails into our own hands. And he died and he accepts our death and he says it's finished so that three days later when he rises again, you and I rose with him. And he reconciles us to him. Now I give you the message and the encouragement and the compelling 
argument today that you should be reconciled to God. God has reconciled you to him. Now you should be reconciled to Christ. Let me say, let me, let me say this. I meant to say this before I closed up my notebook. Let me give you a couple action, three action kind of responses to this. Number one, ask the question of yourself as you're going home today and thinking about this. Where are you and I, where are we living autonomous in our lives? What parts of our lives have we made the decision? Maybe even just subconscious. Where have we made the decision to do things on our own? Number one. Number two, this is what I've been asking myself lately. Where could we express union in a greater measure? What parts of our lives could we express us being hidden in Christ at a greater measure? For me, that was honestly just trusting in the provision of the Lord. For some people, it might be what you do with your money. For some people, it might do the way that you rest or don't rest. For some of you, it may be the way that you see your job. It may be the way that you see the fact that you don't have a good job right now. I don't, it may be the way that you see your family. It may be the way that you see your time. But what areas of our lives could we express union in a greater measure? And then last, last part, last question. What are we or what have we been walking through that we now see was God revealing a loss of union in? Like, what are the things that we have walked through recently, or maybe you're walking through right now, that you're looking at it and you're saying, wait a minute, maybe the reason God's allowed me to walk through this is he's trying to show me the place where I've attempted to live on my own. And when you see that, you can come back to the path. So let me pray over us. Lord, I pray over every single person in the room, every single person that will listen to this later, watching this. And God, I pray that you would bring us back to a dependency that we do not move unless you move. Just like Jesus says, the son does nothing on his own accord, but he only does what he's seen the father do. Only does what he's seen the father do. I pray that we would live our lives in a way that we say, I do not do anything on my own idea, on my own accord, in my own way, but I only do what I have seen the father do. And as we begin to live like that, suddenly these springs and wells of living water begin to rise up within the chaos of ourselves and it begins to release a measure of life that only comes through Christ. It's amazing when Christ says this, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man gets to the Father except through me. Now you're reading that passage and you're reading it with the understanding that Jesus is the image and likeness of God that man was made in. To be human is to be Christ. And I don't mean that we are Jesus Christ. What I mean is our identity is hidden in Christ. We are one with Christ. And so when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, what he's really saying is, is the way that I'm the way, the truth, and the life is I'm the image that you are supposed to find the way, the truth, and the life through. And that's why you can only get through the Father through me. It's not because you live in such a way that it pleases the Christian religion. It's because you start to find your way back to originality. And when you do, suddenly the entire... Let me say it like this. The opportunities available in the Garden of Eden when you're walking in the cool of the day suddenly become limitless when you find yourself hidden in Christ. Nothing is impossible for us.
And so God, I pray that you would give us that encouragement, the boldness this week to live like that. And God, you're bringing us, you're bringing us into some deep waters, into some deep waters. And so Father, I thank you. We love you in this place. We honor you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.